0: Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Danoff, and welcome to What's Next Now. The conversation we're about to share today is the final three of three in our series with Marina Nitzi and Nick Sinai, authors of the book, Hack Your Bureaucracy. Nick and Marina, it is so good to have you back on What's Next Now.
1: Thanks for having us back.
2: Be excited to be here.
0: So could you each take a moment and just tell us what you're up to and introduce yourself, Marina, we'll go with you.
1: Yeah, I'm Marina Nitza. I used to be the Chief Technology Officer of the Department of Veterans Affairs in the Obama administration. These days, I do crisis incident response at my partnership called Layer Olive, and I do foster care reform through New America's New Practice Lab.
0: Cool. Nick, over to you.
2: Sure thing. I spent almost six years in the Obama administration, first at the FCC and then in the White House, ultimately becoming the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer helped start and run the Presidential Innovation Fellows and helped with the open data and open government initiatives. Post-government, I've been a senior advisor at Insight Partners, helping companies enter and prosper in the public sector and also helping with some of the national security investing. And I'm also an adjunct faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you both there. And I want to say it's been great getting to know both of you. Thanks for taking the time to animate many of the stories that are in the book, which readers will have to get the book and read it to understand all of them and some of the things that you've said on this episode and the prior two. And I also just want to thank each of you for your service in government, respectively. You held significant roles, and I always like to thank people for their service to our government. So thank you both for that. As I was prepping for this conversation today, which takes on the third major section of the book... Build your team and make it stick. If it's okay to get us started, Marina and Nick, can I share with you what hit me last night, which is kind of my summary of the book? And here we go. The essence is really about understanding people. What motivates them? What are their fears? What are their personal career desires? And even more importantly, what impact would they like to have in life? And then, finding ways regardless of what role or title I hold today in a large or small organization to help them achieve their goals so that they are motivated to help me achieve my goals and to get stuff done and to do all of this within the context of some very large and mature or even some very small and early bureaucracies, which by design are resistant to change And it seems to getting stuff done. So thank you for the time that you've spent, because that's what I came up with. And I hope it works for you.
1: You're hired as our synopsis writer. (laughs) Thank you.
0: You're welcome. And the other thing that I still find so cool about the book is that through story, the techniques given, especially, you know, at the end of every chapter, how you can use this, it really is like a modern day instruction manual to get stuff done inside of a bureaucracy. It just is. Look, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not simple and it's not fast. I know that because I've sold to the U.S. federal government for most of my career and I work inside a very large bureaucracy, productive, but still a bureaucracy called Google. But change can happen. So with that, let's jump into it. Today, we're talking about build your team and make it stick. I'd like to start with cultivate your Keras, that phrase from Kurt Vonnegut's book, Cat's Cradle. And I found it so interesting because you say that your charis is cultivating relationships with people who want to help you, but also with people who might seem like they are part of the problem, but are actually the key to making true progress. And I found such wisdom in that because that's really kind of the hard thing to do, really the brave thing to do is seek out and approach people who disagree with your point of view and then to learn their point of view. That's tough work. So I wonder if either of you would like to tell us a story about when you use that approach and then how it actually helped you build your Keras.
2: This was just an instrumental way for us to get things done in the Obama White House, in the Obama administration. But I think the story here, or the lessons here, are relevant to any organization. And really, the way that we thought about it, we pronounced it "Kerrass," but it's probably... I wasn't sure. Uh, no, I'm not sure how Kurt Vonnegut pronounced it either, frankly. I don't think you, you called it that, but that's just what we've called it. Got it. And it's really just building on the way you described it, this idea that you should go find people outside of your guild. That is, if you are an accountant, to get outside of the guild of accountants. Mm. If you are a engineer, if you are a salesperson, whatever your guild is, is to really go outside of that guild inside and outside of your organization. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Gary, of, of finding people who, who may seem like they are an obstacle and actively pushing back against you and really understanding why that is. And the more that you're able to authentically understand where they're coming from, the better off you're going to be in terms of creating a collection of people who want to band together Mm -hmm. to get stuff done. One of the crasses we talk about is at the VA, when Marina was the CTO there, about how she created the Grilled Cheese Club. This is not particularly fancy, but she basically had a monthly get together where she may or may not have broken some fire codes (laughs) and had George Foreman grills and made some grilled cheese and had some red wine, and basically had an open invite to anyone across the VA to come see what our team was doing. They would do some live demos, they would talk about what they're doing for an hour, hour and a half. And it was a way to really have an open invitation to people across the VA. And because she worked at headquarters, it meant that she could invite a lot of headquarters executive staff to come participate including people who may have not been in her chain of command mm-hmm. or in her guild of technologists and IT and designers and product people what have you mm-hmm. but those kinds of people would prove to be very helpful when she was getting blocked by a particular legal or finance or HR issue and her ability for these people would stand up and say hey I know Marina I've seen what her team is doing and I can vouch that they're actually following the rules or that isn't the case if cuz sometimes You know, Rumors turn into questions in executive meetings and those kinds of things that can impede progress, especially true with innovative groups. The Grilled Cheese Club was one small but very powerful way that Marina was able to kind of build her carass. But we also tell the story about her going to the procurement office. And the procurement office was not in D.C. It was actually in New Jersey. And if you went out to that particular procurement office and you really broke bread with them and you really got to know them, It made it so much easier when push came to shove and you had to actually try and buy something, which is, of course, one of the ways you get things done in government, only by going out there and and actually building those authentic relationships. And one of the marks of having gone out there was getting a mug from like the local diner, right, if you bought this mug. And so it was a mark of pride on Marina's team to have that mug because it meant that you actually went out and built the grass.
0: It's just amazing when you tell that story, Nick, about how much the little things in life matter, like getting that mug, having that badge of acceptance and honor, and frankly, just spending time with people, making the time and the effort to travel up to New Jersey, like Marina did, to get to know those procurement people who are often marginalized and away from the most innovative and exciting stuff, if you might say. But boy, they are as essential and central and key to getting things done. Probably as anybody. So bringing them into your carouses is so key. Anything to add to that story, Marina?
1: No, I think that really, and to your point earlier, so much of bureaucracy hacking is building authentic relationships with people mm-hmm. and really understanding what their role is, what their job is. You know, going to New Jersey didn't mean we got to break procurement rules. Nobody should hear it that
0: way. <laughs> right, it, of course.
1: But we had a genuine relationship so we could understand with curiosity and like true optimism, what their role was, and they could understand a lot more about what we were up to instead of emailing over an right. urgent request that was being done two weeks later that came out of nowhere for them and they didn't really have the context. And so building that relationship really helped us all do our jobs better. Mm. And that can be hard in bureaucracies where you're not naturally talking to the finance team, you're not naturally talking to the procurement team or janitorial team or human resources team, but it's ultimately that cross-functional team that gets, to me, the really big changes over the finish line. Mm so true.
2: One thing I'd add to that, it's not just about people being part of your carass, it's about you being a part of other people's carass. Mm, Gotcha. There are people who are trying to get things done, and you may be able to help unblock them and help them from your organization, or maybe you have some skill sets that can help them. Right. So it's not just about trying to build this informal group of people that are going to help solve your problems. You can be parts of informal groups, temporary groups that help solve other people's problems and achieve big things for your organization, even though it may not be your particular unit that is leading.
0: We do that so much at Google, Nick. You know, We call it starting a work stream or getting on a pilot team. I spend a good chunk of my time helping other people get stuff done that's important to them because whether directly or indirectly, my experience, my lived experience has been in the universe that that's going to come back to me. It really does. It really does happen that way. And It's kind of like building circles of carasses; They end up connecting one to the other.
2: Yeah, Brad Feld, who's a venture capitalist in the Denver Boulder area, has this idea of give first, that entrepreneurs and venture capitalists should give first in terms of helping other entrepreneurs, in giving them advice, in making an introduction. There's all of these small but powerful ways that entrepreneurs can help other entrepreneurs. And so for people entering the entrepreneurial ecosystem, he preaches to give first. And I think that's a very powerful idea. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Brad, because that's very much an idea that we have incorporated in the book.
0: I'm going to tug that string a little bit more kind of on a random basis here. What does that look like, Nick? If you're starting out as a founder, really, there's a lot of things you need from advisors and venture capitalists to get going. And you're under some Sense of pressure and self-imposed, most likely, but maybe um, from other providers. If you've got some level of funding initially, so how do you be true to that, but also give first? How do you serve both of those dualities?
2: I think it depends on your experience. If you're a serial entrepreneur or you've founded more than one company, then you're going to have a wealth of experience. You will have made a ton of mistakes, even if you've been massively successful. Right. But even if you're on your first venture. Maybe you've already raised some money. Maybe you've already sold to a customer. Maybe you've already built an MVP. You're probably not at the very, very beginning. And so you have learned something and you've made some connections, some mistakes, and some successes in that 12, 24, 36 months that you have been doing your particular venture. And those kinds of experiences can be particularly helpful to other entrepreneurs. Right. I find a lot of Very early stage entrepreneurs hit me up for advice. And I'm frank with them that like, look, I'm happy to chat, but I think that they're going to get a lot more if I connect them to other entrepreneurs who may be a little bit further along in their journey, but have a similar set of experiences and context, right? That's always really the important piece here. They're able to say, no, don't do that. You're going to waste a lot of time trying to talk to this venture capital firm or those types of venture capital firms, because what they're really looking for is X. This is how you ought to be thinking about momentum with customers A, B, and C. It's super helpful to have what I would call peer and near peer, that kind of mentoring. That's the best thing I can do for really early stage entrepreneurs is try and connect them with other entrepreneurs who I really respect and trust.
0: That's fantastic. I appreciate that you do that in the world of startups. I was working with a founder in Ukraine the other day, and she had just given her first pitch to a couple of incubators. She really worked through a lot of things to do that. And it was a big goal of hers. And I said to her, well, now that you've achieved that goal, why don't you share that as a thought leadership piece? And she was thinking, well, nobody would necessarily be interested in that. And I offered her the idea, but there could be a lot of people like you who would love to hear that from somebody early in the process who's just gone through it successfully. So your idea around peer-to-peer assisting or sharing seems to have a lot that could get from it. I'll go back to the book, to page 212, and make your job, and you have a quote from President Obama, which I really love, and I'll tell you why, but it's short, so I'll read it. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And and that last sentence, we are the ones we've been waiting for, is so powerful. We are totally responsible. We completely own it. And really, we are completely empowered to do something about it. Now, for anybody who might be interested in going a little bit deeper into we're the ones we've been waiting for, there is some Hoppy elders of the Hoppy Indian Nation who wrote a piece on that, which I can refer you to, or you can just Google it. But I'd like to ask you, Nick, about your relationship with Todd Park, who I had the pleasure of knowing and seeing him speak. And my God, what a charismatic guy. I mean, he just stood out, obviously. For his energy, his enthusiasm, his sincerity and his authenticity. And in fact, you even say here, Todd incorporated feedback with gusto, expressed genuine enthusiasm and gratitude and gave credit liberally. And I knew him the same way. So I want to ask you in the context of your relationship with Todd, who was then the U.S. Chief Technology Officer, can you talk about the flow model and moving people in and out of roles inside of a company, large or small, and the benefits of doing that.
2: Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Todd was the second of the three U.S. Chief Technology Officers in the Obama administration. Both Marina and I had the distinct honor of working with him in the White House. Todd, very much a private sector entrepreneur and a public sector entrepreneur, as someone who has been incredibly successful at both, and you could see the similarities across the two, Mm -hmm. like where he was able to do things in the same way and where he needed to adapt to his situation. Mm -hmm. Because in the public sector, you may have more constraints and you may have to get more buy-in or more socialization, or you also have the hill to deal with, or, you know, there's other kinds of constraints, but fundamentally watching him recognize the importance of building great teams, putting a vision out there, dreaming big, Mm -hmm. but having a smaller, quicker, wins and prototypes of the idea, whether it's a policy idea or a product or solution or whatever the it was, really that focus on let's get an MVP of the it, let's find ways to get the rapid feedback about it, make those changes and continue to, if it is solving the problem or scratching the itch, to find ways to attract additional people and capital, political support, enthusiasm, so forth. So it really is that same level of continuous learning and experimentation with a eye towards massive scale in the same way that an entrepreneur comes in and says, Hey, I want to be the category leader and build this billion dollar company. But any investor is going to say, okay, well, tell me about the first customer and what that first customer experience is. And how did you win that customer? And what was the customer's experience? This is true. Maybe in consumer, it's the first thousand customers, you know, a cohort, but it's still that same First few set of customers, and it's that same type of approach that Todd would bring to anything that we were working on. And one of his early ideas when he became the U.S. Chief Technology Officer was this idea of Presidential Innovation fellows. Right. So inspired by Code for America and some other fellows models, partnering with the U.S. CIO, with other folks inside of the White House, Todd really got support across not only the White House, but also a number of agencies who proposed pilot projects, wow. then went out to Silicon Valley and pitched this model. And we got people like Marina to say, you know what, this is crazy, but I'm going to sign up and do it. The first round of the Presidential Innovation Fellows happened, and we had some really fantastic talent who found a way to not only make an impact, but got interested in public service. And some of them stuck around and continued to create greater and greater impact and and were true entrepreneurs. They were not just technologists, which is what we were looking for, but they were technologists and entrepreneurs or had entrepreneurial tendencies. Yeah. That is the the ability of, hey, if something takes seven months or two weeks, how to do the two-week thing and learn from that because they both may be kosher within the rule set. And you may get 80% of the way there in the two-week thing, but you learn so much more about constraints, about preferences that people aren't talking about, about political challenges, about past failures, all those kinds of things in two weeks. So this fellows model of bringing talented people in, whether they're interns or fellows or executives and residents, I'm a big fan of, and Marina is too, because we see how you can bring energy and skills and experiences and relationships into an organization. And that can be a, a dynamic catalyst. If it's framed correctly, right. because what you don't want to do is have kind of the savior complex of, hey, we have these really smart, talented people who come in from these really fancy places, and they're going to solve or save you. That's a recipe for disaster. We were pretty conscious of that. And through the life cycle of the Presidential Innovation Fellow, we worked to make sure that that wasn't the case, especially the farther we went on, we would really work closely with agencies. because. The only way that someone coming in is going to be successful is if the agency is successful, if the agency sponsors it, if the agency has talented innovators who are going to partner with this particular fellow who comes in for six or 12 months. In fact, 80 or 90% of the credit should really go to the host agency Mm -hmm. that is clearing the decks, that is giving very senior sponsorship, that is thinking about how this person can be successful in this time-limited period. And it's the combination of an internal team plus a presidential innovation fellow that was able to generate some enthusiasm and get people inside and outside of the agency excited about the particular project, but also about the agency's mission and about innovation and technology and entrepreneurship in government overall. So we always knew that this was not going to be, hey, every single fellow is going to hit a grand slam. Right each project is going to be so transformational, it's going to change each agency. That wasn't the case. In fact, many of the projects stalled out or only did okay, or there was, there was a change in focus. But there was enough energy and enough people like Marina who came in who really changed government for the better. And so I've been fortunate to be involved in not only the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, but more recently, I helped set up the US Digital Corps, right. which is early career technical fellowship, a two-year federal fellowship run by GSA, but hosted by a number of federal civilian agencies. At Insight Partners, we've participated in the reverse, which is hosting active duty military service members for six weeks inside of venture capital wow. firm or a portfolio company, you know, a startup that we've invested in. And I love that model because The Defense Department is struggling with understanding the innovation economy. Mm. You want to talk about a classic large bureaucracy (laughs) that says it wants to understand innovation. It says it wants to get closer to startups and scale-ups, has all these units like the Defense Innovation Unit. But there's the question of, like how does it really do this at scale? And putting mid-career service members in uniform who spend six weeks at Insight or one of our portfolio companies, and they do this across the venture industry, so it's not just us. Defense Ventures Program. It's tremendously impactful because not only do we learn a lot about the military, but they learn a lot about how the innovation economy really works. And then they go back and then they have these careers for another 10, 15, 20 years in the military. So I think both externships and internships, people flow in and out of organizations can be a real powerful catalyst.
0: Boom. (laughs) That was a great piece right there. We have one of those internships at Google where we take in active duty military service members and we put them into situations where they get to try different things out. And and I I just love it. I'm such a big supporter of that program. Thanks for your innovation there, Marina. Glad you raised your hand and said, I'm going to take a dare. I'm going to take a gamble. What did that feel like for you to do that? What did you feel like you were giving up and what did you feel like you would gain?
1: Well, I like to say that Nick tricked me because I was told I was just coming for six months, and I lived in Seattle at the time. That
0: tricky Nick.
1: I had four days notice to move to DC. I didn't even take my cats. I like found a friend to stay because I was coming back, and I went into it with a totally wrong mindset. Though I was going to show myself that like government was irreparably broken, and there was nothing that you could do to fix it. And I ended up staying. Arguably, you could say I'm still in it. Right? I still work in foster care. I still right. do crisis consulting with states because. The possibility for impact is so huge and it's so rewarding. And the better you get at bureaucracy hacking, right? The more interesting sorts of problems you have the opportunities to work mm. on. So I'm sort of, I have the bug for life. I
0: <laughs> well, we're glad you caught it. We're glad you caught it. As an executive advisor and coach, I serve founders, entrepreneurs, executives, and all of those around them on the teams that they work with. I love working with people in leadership and contributor roles in the organization, regardless of title. What matters most is the curiosity that clients have to overcome obstacles, create new paths for themselves and their organizations, and importantly, to do so while employing a mix of humor, determination, and a desire to create work that they and others love. If you are looking to change, achieve, or lead an initiative, and feel like you would benefit by coaching with me, then please let me know and I'll schedule up to 60 minutes of listening time with you where I can hear and learn about the challenges and opportunities that you perceive you have in front of you that you would like to accelerate. There'll be no charge for this first session, and then we can determine if coaching with me is good for you. Thanks a lot. I'm going to jump back to page 227 because there's such an interesting phrase. It's a provocative phrase that you have in the book, but once getting past the phrase and understanding the meaning of it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's kind of fun. And it relates to attracting your detractors or understanding your detractors. And the phrase is, stab people in the chest. (laughs) And you knew I was going to say that. Be open and honest with your detractors about where and how you disagree. This builds unique sort of trust. Where, despite your difference of opinion, your colleagues will gain confidence that you won't blindside them down the road. Marina, here's my question for you. Some people have a challenge being confrontive and also with directness. And I see this in a lot of leaders I work with at all levels, inside and outside of Google. Not everyone, but for some folks, it's easier not to confront and instead to just be sideways. So, at the risk of asking a rhetorical question, I'm going to ask you, what's wrong with just waiting to see if you need to confront someone before confronting them up front?
1: I mean, what's wrong with it is it's not going to work, or at least it's not going to work repeatedly. You might get lucky sometimes. And I would say stabbing someone in the chest is slightly different from confronting them, although I certainly understand how perhaps someone with a shyer personality, even a totally neutral conversation could feel confrontational. Mm -hmm. But what we offer this advice in is counter to, I think, a lot of people's tendency either to avoid the conflict entirely and hope that it works out. Right. And again, it might, but then you're not really doing anything to help your cause. Right. Or there is a, definitely a strong tendency to show up at the decision meeting excited to blindside someone mm. as though this is a high school debate where you're going to talk and they're going to talk and you are going to be declared the winner. And that is also not how the real world works. We have a, a whole chapter in the book about how to do the work outside the meeting. Mm-hmm. In decision making meetings, there are some things that you could and should do in a meeting, like enlist others to show support or make it easy for people that are maybe new to understand some complex issues. But for the most part, like you, if you're showing up to a decision meeting and you don't know how every single person in that room is going to vote and why, right. you did not do the work. And therefore, why are you doing the project at all if you're not going to do the work, is sort of my perspective. On right. But yeah, the premise of stabbing someone in the chest is you don't want to stab them in the back.
0: Oh, I get it. (laughs) The light bulb just went off. It took me a few months, but I got it.
1: No, all good. And this is a really, it was very hard for me. It's still definitely not my favorite one. But when I start noticing a conflict bubbling, whatever it may be, I now know that the right thing to do is to sit down with that person one-on-one. Right. The goal of stabbing someone in the chest is not to change their mind. Right. It's again, to build trust in them that you're not going to stab them in the back. Right. So when you go to that decision meeting, they know exactly what I'm going to say on slide 11. They know exactly what my argument is going to be. Maybe they'll change something, but probably not. But then when you go to that next meeting, when we actually need to agree on something, instead of now hating each other, not trusting each other, thinking, you know, Marina is slimy and hid things. Now we actually have like a really functioning working relationship.
0: That's awesome. That's just such a smart use of human energy and relationship dynamics. I like to use the phrase sometimes when I feel tension with somebody and I sense that they're not agreeing with me, not only asking them, is there something that you disagree with me about? But I'll sometimes say, do we have something to resolve here? Because I feel some tension about something and I'm not sure what that's about. One way or another, it's to get them to feel safe enough to open up and say what their concern is.
1: There's levels of this tactic. And if you, if it sounds like the most terrifying thing in the world to sit down with your detractors and, and walk through it, you could always send notes in an email, send your slides ahead. Of, simply send the slides that you're going to show anyway ahead of time. Like There are small steps you can take building towards having that one-on-one conversation that can work as well.
2: I'm no game theorist, but one of the ways that I think about this is working in a bureaucracy, working in any organization is a infinite game almost that is it's not just about that one meeting to get that one approval and uh, the budget approval or the formal go authority or go no go kind of thing but you'll probably have multiple times to kind of come back to ask for budget or people or permissions or authority or those kinds of things because that's the nature of any size organization really especially bureaucracies right it's about building trust because the game keeps going on and on.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's another section in the book, which you all have written, called Play the Long Game. I think that's what you're speaking to. It's so true. You go for budget on one project or initiative that you want to get done, you get it done, and then that goes straight ahead as you'd hope, goes sideways, goes backwards, or goes in any longitudinal direction. Then you've got to go back to a group of people again and make adjustments and make changes so the relationship you have with them is crucial it's never a one and done (laughs) so in that process now that i get it marina and thanks for clarifying stab somebody the chest is really about just informing them and warming them up and not having them be surprised what about being prepared for when you get five minutes with the head honcho and there was just an amazing story in the book a couple around this topic I don't think that President Obama ever actually came by your desk, Nick, but I think you were ready for that. And Marina, I know that you actually had an opportunity, then Secretary Sinsesky of the VA, I think he was retired Army. He would work late at night and and that was his ethic. Maybe not the best thing for work-life balance, but so be it. Everybody has their style. Did he come by your desk one night and did you have something to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, Secretary Szecki had the hardest work ethic of anyone I've met. And I've worked with some people with serious work ethics. And he would go around at night on his way home and stop into each person's office, who anybody was left. And this could be like 10 p.m. Wow. I learned very quickly, and the advice of, of another colleague, that the thing to say in that moment was not good night every night. <laughs> it was to have some bit of something to like get him excited or get a question answered or be memorable. It's slightly different than five minutes with the head honcho because you knew it was coming if you were willing to stay Uh, at the office long enough. Always being kind of ready with something useful and productive to say, in addition to good night, of course. That's another way of relationship building. It could also be asking, you know, after his grandkids or his wife or just, you know, making sure you have some balance there in relationship building. I think Nick's story is better. President Obama did come by our desks in the White House. We just were not there that day. Oh, that's what it was. That's
0: what it was. Wow, that must have been a huge disappointment to you guys. Oh, my
2: gosh. It happens. I I had gone home a little bit early on a Friday, and I think Marina was in the field that day. President Obama doesn't usually walk around the old executive office building, the the Eisenhower building, uh, which is part of the White House campus, but it's where thousands of White House employees actually work. But I think he was taping a particular... Segment And there was a news studio or, or a studio near the office of science and technology policy. I guess people knew that he was coming by and found a way to prop open the door and kind of, you know, <laughs> wave or get him to come in. And so there's a picture of Todd Park, most of our office, most of Marina and I's colleagues, and my desk and the whiteboard that Marina had written a bunch of tasks on about what we were going to go do. I don't think too much of the actual tasks were, were visible. But it is a reminder that you will have these kinds of meetings that, you know, the the White House is a quite large bureaucracy of several thousands of people. And even Todd, who was assistant to the president, didn't get to meet with the president regularly. And that's true of of any assistant to the president. There's so many people and so many things going on. And so so few hours in the day. Our tactic is, hey, you never know when you might have a few minutes with, it doesn't have to be the head head boss sometimes it may be the division head or the VP or or someone who is several ranks up. And you have that kind words at the coffee machine at the water cooler, you know, at entry or exit in the elevator, etc. And yeah, most of those are kind of social interactions where you know, how you doing what's going on. But it's also helpful to have a little bit of a nugget of something that's interesting about what you're working on. Because we tend to forget that, people's experiences are bounded by their experiences and what they hear and see and read. We're so deep in our own work, in our own projects, in our own initiatives. They may have read about it in some status update three weeks ago, but that doesn't mean they really have an understanding of its urgency of how much it can really help people or help the business or help the agency. If you can find a way to be ready, and sometimes that may just be an offhand update right. or description of a little little thing that could lead to a much bigger invitation. And in fact, Marina was able to get her strategic plan for the VA into the secretary's briefing materials and get him excited about it, and so forth. And there's just these examples of you never know when you might get those few few minutes. And I think it's actually good. It's a good thought exercise, even if you never run into the president of the United States, even if you never run into the CEO of your or executive director of your particular organization is what would you say to that? person? Right. What would you say that you're working on and why are you working on that? Like Exactly. If you had, if you had to do that, that, that elevator pitch in 30 seconds or less, you know, are you prepared? How would you do that? And that, that forces you to think about what really matters and what is the thing that you want to communicate to people at the very top or outside of the organization.
0: It's so necessary and so true. I was on a call just last Friday with an executive and we were talking about some pre-formulated information that I knew he was going to have a comment on. I had shared it with him and and then kind of toward the end, he said, so tell me what you're working on. And I popped right into, well, there's three things that I'm working on. I just want to it having to do with revenue, partner relationships, and measuring the impact of our salespeople. I think you can develop the habit to be ready with that so it's not intimidating or unnerving. It's something that just takes a little practice and a little bit of a habit, but you got to have the data, you got to know the script, and you got to feel like it's real. There's a couple of things I just want to combine here as we we move toward the, the end of our time. We talk about don't try to make the bureaucracy care. And then on page 291, you talk about create a new organization and <laughs> There's a quote in there from a comedian who probably most people won't remember, but this guy, check him out, Google him, Milton Berle, who was a very famous comedian. And it's so short and simple what he said, if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door. (laughs) If opportunity doesn't knock, build a door, damn it. Get going and start making what you need. I kind of related this to the work that you did, Nick, and coding it forward and some of the things you brought to your class at Harvard and the U.S. Digital Corps, which I think we've already covered. But Marina or Nick, would you have an additional comment on that saying?
2: I think just very briefly, we get so focused on the roles and the career progression that an organization sets out or that our peers are going through. And we think that those are the only ways. Mm. We're big believers in Thinking about whether you can create your own job inside of an organization, Love it. whether you can create your own organization. And maybe that's internal, right? Maybe it's a, a group or a unit or a special task force. Maybe it's outside. Maybe it's a nonprofit or a for-profit side hustle or joined together at some sort of JV or alliance or something like that. Oftentimes, we're so trapped into thinking, hey, what are the job descriptions for the positions What does the existing organization need? And there are times when it's, it's helpful to just say, well, wait, let's step back. Whether this is my personal career or whether we're talking about this particular project or initiative or or product or idea, maybe that that's best housed outside of my organization or in some other way. And that's true with coding it forward as a nonprofit was actually better founded outside of Harvard as a nonprofit rather than as a Harvard student group where it would have been limited by some of the constraints on student groups.
0: Yeah, just giving yourself permission to have that sort of expansiveness where you're not bounded by the box that you maybe show up to every day or maybe that you think you have to perform and operate within. Build your own box. Build your own doors. Way to go.
1: We put that tactic intentionally towards the end of the book, though, I would say, because sometimes I meet people, and this especially hits in my foster care work, where the first thing they want to do to help foster kids is they're going to start a (laughs) nonprofit. And I think you should hold this tactic off until you really understand the space, you understand the constraints of your current box, as it were. And then, you know, to Nick's point, absolutely, sometimes you need a new box, different Mm. boxes, different constraints, but that's going to be its own bureaucracy, as we've talked about. Mm. It's inescapable. So it should be a thoughtful decision Mm. and not a, I haven't tried anything else. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I like that. A little bit of a sage guidance there on when to use that one.
2: I think that's true on career stuff too. Is you have to be excellent to progress in an organization. It's not okay to say, well, I'm flailing about, I'm not doing very well, so therefore I'm going to go try and create my own role inside this organization. Right. People are going to give you permission to try something new or create new structures or rewrite your own job description inside of an organization, if you've built the trust by doing the things that that you're expected to do, and then some, right? So it's not just a demonstrated creativity and interest in things outside of your role, but it's also you've built enough currency of doing your existing role.
0: That's really so important, Nick, because a lot of people today, I find in a particular cohort of people who I work with inside and outside of Google, want to advance very, very quickly. And I'm kind of old school in that regard that you get to advance based on what you've built. You get to advance based on what you've documented and demonstrated you're skilled and capable of doing, not just because it's the career path I've laid out for myself, in XYZ timeframe, and therefore it shall be. So I I think that's really useful to call out and to say, and there's something so much to be gained when you take your time. In terms of your own self-confidence, when you take the time and do those things, then you're really ready to create that next role for yourself. You've got the fortitude to do it. So when you do that, if you do that, and you're moving on, how do you leave the bureaucracy better off?
1: I had the unique situation when I joined the VA, I was a political appointee. And so I always knew that my last day of, in my job was going to be January 17th, 2017, even when I started in 2013. And so that gave me the chance to think constantly about how am I going to codify the things I'm working on Mm. so that they will live past me? And this can range from, we talk a lot in the book about not taking shortcuts, not skirting around rules, but like really, if you want to leave your bureaucracy better off, you have to change the policies, Mm. the rules, the forms, whatever it may be. And then it's about also thinking as you are starting to leave, how much political capital you have accrued and what you want to spend it on. Mm. In my case, i Really cared that Charles Worthington, my successor, was the next chief technology officer of the VA. Because if they hired, I'm not even going to say a bad person, but like a fairly random person, like everything was precarious enough that I felt like it was going to go off the rails. So any last ounce of political capital I had accrued over five years went into finding ways that that could get prioritized on the political appointment list. Just really encouraging you to think through when you leave, what can you put in place so that your bureaucracy is better off after you leave and when you are not there anymore?
2: Nick, to you? I was not a political appointee, but I worked in a role in which if Obama had lost the re-election, I would not have had a job. So I was pretty close to being a political appointee inside the presidency anyway. For me, I saw so many people rotate in and out of government. It's pretty clear that you got to ascribe to the what happens if I get hit by a bus today philosophy. I was describing this actually just, just last Friday at a board meeting, and someone said, Wouldn't it be better if we talked about this as if this person went to Tahiti on vacation, you know, or moved to Tahiti rather than getting hit by a bus? So it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, uh, I'm sure you have, eat your own dog food versus drink your own champagne. But the, the idea is the same is, can you remove yourself from the organization and will things continue to operate and ideally even just be better without you? That was the way that I like to approach things. That meant that whatever you're trying to get done through force of personality, Mm -hmm. you had better be careful because as soon as you're removed, then that wasn't going to work anymore unless they were hiring someone who you know had a greater force of personality (laughs) coming behind you, which is entirely possible. Taking the time to think about what are the structural changes. Mm -hmm. So not just, oh, I got my project, I got my policy approved, but hey, can we make a change in how we make the decision, in how we document the decision? In who gets to weigh in, all those kinds of things—they're you know—they're less sexy, right? You're, yeah. you're excited about the president's executive order or your CEO's big strategic initiative. How the decision was made is oftentimes secondary and less exciting to people. But if you can find ways to make those changes for the better, I think that's really leaving your bureaucracy better off.
0: I guess that's true, Nick. You know, you got to take personality out of it and. And like you said, Marina, changing the forms, changing the policies, which become personality independent at that point. I just have immense respect for the grit and perseverance that it takes for people to do that and what both of you did. I want to close the show in the series today first with just a quick little recap. You both worked at the White House. Nick, you at the FCC and the White House and Marina, you at the VA and the White House You both are continuing to make contributions in government one way or another today, as well as in the private sector. What's next now? Given everything you've done, what is next now for you, Marina?
1: We've got some exciting updates in foster care world right now, where there's going to be a new federal rule that will let states have separate processes for licensing their relative caregivers. Oh, wow. And what that means is we're going to unlock $3 billion a year to families living below the poverty line and dramatically increase the permanency and outcomes of kids in foster care. So wow. I am excited to help make sure that that gets codified, those forms and policies and practices get hammered in and then I don't know what's next after that. We'll find out some new, really hard problem. I
0: I love it. (laughs) I love that you don't know what's next after that. That is very good. It will become clear. Nick, for you, sir, what's current and what's next?
2: What's current for me is I'm thinking about how to scale some of these talent people flow programs that I've been involved with. Mm. So for coding it forward, which is in going into year six, how do we scale to more federal, state, and local agencies? I'd love. Agencies, governments find ways to partner with Coding and Ford to get talented technologists, software designers, developers, data scientists into government and getting them excited and inspired about serving in public sector. Same thing is true with the U.S. Digital Corps. They're going to continue to expand there in year two. And so I'm excited to see the rapid growth of the U.S. Digital Corps. I'm spending a lot of time also on national security. And, and working with great entrepreneurs and executives and entrepreneurial teams on how do we bring the best software to national security problems? Mm. That's something I feel very passionate about is we need to find ways to make it easier for the defense department and other national security agencies to partner with great growing software companies because software companies, especially those that are bringing artificial intelligence and other modern software development techniques to the national security problem space, I think that's going to be really critical. We see this already in Ukraine as one example where software and AI and distributed use thereof is really changing how that conflict has played out. So I'm excited to work. I serve on the board of four of these companies. I'm excited to continue to work with them as they scale. I like
0: to think of what's next now, the show as a community. And I'm sure there's many people who've listened to this show and the prior two shows with both of you on them who would love to be in touch and join in your energy stream for each of your causes respectively. And so how would they get in touch with you if they'd like to do that?
1: We are easy to find on the internet. You could go to hackyourbureaucracy.com for our contact information, but mostly I'm Marina Nitza everywhere. And Nick is Nick Sinai everywhere. LinkedIn, Twitter, threads. Come talk to us about your bureaucracy acting challenges.
0: Love it. I love it. I've learned so much from both of you and have enjoyed these conversations as as much as any that I've had with guests on the show. So I thank you for that. I'm looking forward to what's next now for both of you and for all the listeners to come. And so with that, thank you for being on the show. And I appreciate everybody tuning in and listening today. Thanks everybody. Thanks
2: so much for having
1: me.
0: Thanks Marina. Thank you, Thanks Nick.